Okay, so Matthew chapter 21, and starting at verse 12. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Thanks, Richard. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning, and um, great to be with you as we look at this next part of Matthew. Please do keep it open in front of you um, as we look at these words together. One of the truths that we read in the Bible is that Christians live by faith and not by sight. And I wonder if you've ever wished it was the other way around. Wouldn't it be easier if we lived by sight and not by faith. We trust in a saviour that we haven't seen. We pray to a God who is hidden from our eyes. Wouldn't it be easier if sight played a bigger role now than faith? Now, this is one reason, perhaps, why other religions in our world have gained some traction. In many other religions, there is something tangible to grasp hold of, isn't there? Whether it's an icon, a shrine, an image of God, a candle, incense, or whether it's something you bring as a worshipper, an offering, a pledge, a piece of fruit, whatever it might be, there's something attractive about the tangible, something appealing about a religion of sight. And that's one of the reasons why the first believers in Jesus were so tempted to turn back to the old ways of the temple. You can read about that in the book of Hebrews. There was something immediate and visible in the Old Testament system. Actual sacrifices made in a real temple. There were buildings and altars and animals, things that you could see and things that you could touch. And yet, if we have really come to understand the realities of the kingdom of heaven, we'll know that this way of, that, sorry, that way of life, tangible though it was, the Old Testament system, is nothing compared to what we now have in Jesus Christ. When we place our trust in Jesus, we are given something far better and far more lasting than anything else our world has to offer. If you're not a Christian today, I hope you'll come to see this clearly as we look at the Bible together, that Jesus is better than anything else in this world. And church family, I pray we'll see this afresh as we look at these words as well. So let me pray as we begin, that this would be the case. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that by the end of this morning, every one of us would be able to sing the words of the final song uh, with more conviction. How sweet the sound of saving grace. Please open our eyes this morning to see the treasures that we have in the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, the Gospel writer Matthew is going to show us two things from this part um, of his book. He's going to show us that the temple is condemned as useless. And then he's going to thrill us with the news that the temple is replaced with something better. 
So let's turn to verses 12 and 13. The temple is condemned as useless. Now, two weeks ago, you might remember if you were here um, for this series in Matthew, you might remember Jesus riding in on a donkey into Jerusalem with the shouts and praises of the watching crowds. And this arrival we saw two weeks ago was a moment of world-changing significance. Here is God's king who has come to his city in fulfillment of all God's promises in the Old Testament to establish God's kingdom. So the question is, what is the first thing that Jesus does when he arrives in Jerusalem? What does God's king do? Well, he goes to the heart of the city, to the place of worship, the temple, and let's read what he does in verse 12. Have a look at verse 12. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, before we get into the details of this, these verses, let me just paint you a picture of what the temple would have been like at this time. The temple area referred to here was huge. It was 33 acres large. So if you've ever stood in Trafalgar Square in London, which I guess many of us have done, it was about six times as big as Trafalgar Square. Or if you want another sense of its size, it's about 23 million post-it notes side by side, if you work in that measurement. Um, in other words, it's massive. And this temple area included the temple itself, you know, what we often think of um, when we think about temple. It was the temple building, but also the several courts that surrounded uh, that temple, all with different purposes. And the outer court, which was known as the Court of the Gentiles, was where this action was taking place. So imagine, it's a huge courtyard, buyers and sellers all the way around it, the hustle and bustle of a marketplace, hundreds of people milling around. And Jesus enters the courts, and he's not pleased with what he sees. It's not often in the Gospels that we see Jesus like this, is it? Driving people away, overturning tables, toppling benches. We're meant to be shocked by what Jesus does here. Jesus is visibly and publicly declaring his verdict on the temple. It is useless. The whole operation is faulty. It's a failure. And we might be wondering, I mean, the question we need to ask here is, what's the issue for Jesus? What's going on in the temple that causes this reaction from God's king? Well, let me give you some options and we can think it through uh, together. Is it the trading itself that's the problem in the temple? Maybe Jesus doesn't want any buying or selling going on in Jerusalem. Well, I don't think that's quite right. Remember that Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem at the start of the Jewish Passover festival. This was a time when God's people remembered their rescue from Egypt. And so thousands of people would be arriving into Jerusalem to celebrate. If you've ever been to Edinburgh during the Fringe Festival, it's that kind of image, but with less people handing out flyers. You know, loads of people there, all the hotels booked up, traffic at a standstill, mayhem. And if you've traveled for miles and miles to get to Jerusalem then there's no way that you're going to be bringing your own cattle to sacrifice at the temple. It's basically impossible to drive cattle across the desert or carry uh, doves for days on end. No, it was right, and it was necessary for these pilgrims to buy their sacrifices as they entered Jerusalem. There was also a need for the money changers that we hear reference to in these verses, because for various reasons, you needed to buy a certain type of coin 
a Tyrian coin to purchase sacrifices. So the people would have needed to exchange money in order to uh, get money in the right currency. So the trading itself is not the problem. So what is the problem? Well, maybe it's corruption. Maybe these sellers are cheating people out of money. Maybe it's the corrupt system that Jesus is angered about here. And one hint of that, I think, is in verse 12 in the mention of doves. Doves were the sacrifices that poorer people um, could make. You know, if they couldn't afford uh, the costly goats or lambs or cattle, then it was doves that you could buy to offer in the temple. So maybe Matthew is alluding to some kind of exploitation of the poor that's going on in the temple. Or maybe the problem is the location of the marketplace. And I think there's some credibility to that idea as well. Apparently, the location of these transactions used to be outside the temple on the Mount of Olives. But sometime, probably quite recently to this, it's been moved into the place of prayer and the place of worship, into the temple courts itself. And that is unacceptable to Jesus. I think that's part of it. But really, the only way we're going to answer this question and to know what's really going on and what is really angering Jesus here is by reflecting together on Jesus' own words in verse 13. Here is where we get to the heart of the issue, isn't it? And we see it in this mixtape, this mashup of two Old Testament quotations, both of them packed with significance. Have a look at verse 13 again. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer. That's the first quotation from Isaiah chapter 56. But you are making it a den of robbers. That's the second quotation from Jeremiah chapter 7. Now, I'd like us to think about these two quotations. You don't need to turn back to them. We're going to have, have them on the screen uh, in a moment. Um, but let's begin with this second one from Jeremiah chapter 7 and this language of den of robbers. What is Jesus saying here about what's going on in the temple? Well, Jeremiah chapter 7 would have been a well-known chapter for Jewish believers, and it focuses on the judgment that is coming on unrepentant Israel. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 7 is told to go to the gates of the temple and to proclaim this prophecy to those who are entering into the temple as a warning to them. He's to tell them to amend their ways and to change their deeds, to repent before it's too late. But instead in the chapter, we read that the people of God are trusting in these deceptive words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Why is that deceptive? Well, it's because the Israelites are using the temple as a kind of magic charm. You know, if they have the temple then they're safe. That's what they're thinking. It doesn't matter what else they do in the rest of their lives. It doesn't matter what sin they commit. As long as they have the temple, it will all be okay. But God is not so easily deceived. And so listen to the words that Jeremiah is to proclaim to the people um, on the screen. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. So do you see what's going on here? God 
saw what was going on in the temple many years before Jesus. He saw that there was no genuine worship happening in the temple. He saw that it was only a sham religion. And he saw the people using the temple as a safety net. As long as we have the temple, we're safe. It doesn't matter what else we do. And I think that helps us to understand this phrase, a den of robbers. Imagine with me a group of thieves who go out and commit their crimes and then bring their stolen goods back to the agreed safe house. They look at their gold and their jewels that they've just stolen and they think to themselves, no one will ever find us here. A den of robbers is a hideout for thieves. It's a place where sinners can go and they think they're safe and it allows them to carry on in their sin. I think that's the image that we're seeing here um, with this language of den of robbers. But in Jeremiah, it's like there's a CCTV camera up on the wall of the safe house watching them the whole time because God knows what is going on in his house. God sees. And this place of safety will come to ruin. Let's read on in Jeremiah's prophecy again on the screen. God tells the people this. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your fathers. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your brothers, the people of Ephraim. Do you see what God is promising here in Jeremiah? Back in Jeremiah's day, the Lord promised to bring judgment on the temple. Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle was in the days of the judges. But in the opening chapters of 1 Samuel, we see the glory of the Lord depart from the tabernacle as the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. And so God is saying through Jeremiah that the temple will come to a similar end. And the unrepentant people who have not listened to God and who have trusted in the temple as their place of safety, will be cast out from God's presence. This came true in the exile. Jerusalem was overrun, the temple was destroyed, the people were scattered. And so can you see what Jesus is saying in Matthew as he enters into the temple? The Lord of the temple looks around at what's going on, and the verdict is, den of robbers. God's house is being treated as a safe house while people carry on in their sin. And because of the lack of true worship, the temple is condemned. And exile is coming again. Now you might have heard this incident referred to um, in the Gospels as the cleansing of the temple. Sometimes that's how uh, the heading is in, in our Bibles that people have put in. But I don't think that's right, is it? This is not the cleansing of the temple. This is the condemning of the temple. In a matter of days, this physical building will have no more use for the people of Israel, and the whole system is going to come crashing to the ground. So that's what Jesus is teaching us in those last words of verse 13. But what about the other quotation from Isaiah 56? My house will be called a house of prayer. Well, if Jeremiah was about scattering and judgment, the quote from Isaiah is about gathering and salvation. God makes a promise through Isaiah to transform his house, his temple, into a house of prayer. A place where right worship is offered to God by genuine worshippers. 
a place that would welcome in all the nations of the world. So listen uh, to these words from Isaiah 56 on the screen. This is what God promises. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Do you see the contrast going on in Isaiah compared to Jeremiah? What an amazing future promise that God makes. God promises that his house will be transformed into a house of prayer where people from all nations will receive salvation. Foreigners can find their place in God's kingdom. The exiles of Israel will be gathered in. And so in verse 13, God is bringing together these two extraordinary promises from the Old Testament. On the one hand, Jeremiah 7, exile, judgment, condemnation on the temple, scattering for God's people. On the other hand, Isaiah 56, a new exodus, salvation, restoration of the temple, the gathering of God's people from all the nations of the world. And so do you see, at the very moment that Jesus condemns the temple as useless, at the very moment he declares judgment on the nation of Israel, at the moment he symbolically brings an end to the whole temple system, he also proclaims a time of salvation a time when false worship will be replaced with true worship. And this brings us to our second point. The temple is replaced with something better in verses 14 to 17. Now, in the next scene, we're introduced to three groups of people in the temple, and I want us to think about them in turn, the lame, the leaders, and the little ones. Three groups with three different responses to Jesus. Let's think first about the lame in verse 14. Verse 14 is a lovely moment that Matthew recalls in his story, and it's packed with significance. Jesus has just cast out the traders, and then uh, comes verse 14. Have a look, look at it with me. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. As Jesus is judging the temple and bringing an end to sacrifices, we get a hint, don't we, of a new gathering of people, a gathering of people around Jesus Christ. But why the blind and the lame? Now, it's worth knowing that this group would have been excluded from some, in some way from life in the temple. Just listen to how one commentator puts it, Don Carson. He writes this. He says, most Jewish authorities forbade any person lame, blind, deaf, or mute from offering a sacrifice. So they would have been allowed in the outer courts like they are here, but they wouldn't have been included in the sacrifices that were being offered. They were in some sense excluded from worship in the Jewish community. But we also know from the Old Testament that the coming kingdom of God would bring with it the full inclusion of people just like this. We get a hint of that with King David in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Right after David takes his place as king in Jerusalem, he sought out people he could show kindness to. And the very first person, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, was a man who was lame. Listen to these words from 2 Samuel chapter 9. 
And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. So God's king gathers to himself the people who many others would have excluded. But the clearest foreshadowing of what we read in verse 14 is in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 35. When God comes to bring salvation, we read this. We read, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. We've seen this theme in Matthew as Jesus goes about healing the blind and the lame. People have been asking, could this be the son of David? Could this be God's king? Could this be the time of salvation? And in verse 14, we see the answer again. As the God-man, Jesus Christ, comes to his temple, we see the dawning of this new age of salvation. Yes, the temple might be coming to an end, but it's not the end for man's relationship with God. It's just the beginning, and it is all centered on Jesus Christ. He is gathering to himself a community, a gathering of true worshippers. Well, let's move on uh, to the leaders. What do we learn about the leaders in this part of Matthew? Well, all the way through this section, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem have been in the background of the story, I think. They're the ones responsible for what is going on in the temple. They regulate temple life. They're, they're, they're responsible for the corrupt worship because they're the ones who allow things to be going on in the temple. They're underpinning the system. And so let's see what we read about them next in verse 15. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things Jesus did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. So earlier in the passage, Jesus was angry, wasn't he, at the false worship that he saw in the temple? But what makes the leaders angry? Well, two things. Something they see and something they hear. What have they seen? Well, verse 15, they've seen the wonderful things that Jesus has done in the temple. They've seen the overturning of the tables. They've seen the blind and the lame healed by Jesus, restored by him, and they're indignant. Who gave Jesus the authority to do those things? But they've also heard something, haven't they? They've heard the shouts of the children in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Now that phrase, the wonderful things he did, is rare in the New Testament, but it's common in the Old Testament. Just let me give you a couple of key moments when this word is used in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 3, verse 20, God says, I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, Pharaoh will let you go. Well, listen to this one. Right at the end of the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy chapter 34, the very last verse of the book, for no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Same word. So this word is associated with the Exodus, the wonderful deeds that God performed through Moses when he saved his people. And that word gets used again and again in the book of Psalms. Psalm 9, verse 1, I'll give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of your wonderful deeds. Psalm 72, praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. 
Psalm 86, verse 10, you are great and do marvellous deeds. You alone are God. So the one who performs wonderful deeds in the Bible is the Lord, the God of Israel. And his wonderful deeds are seen especially in the salvation of his people. And so now we have Jesus in the temple performing wonderful deeds, bringing about a new spiritual exodus for his people rescuing them from sin, ushering in the time of salvation, and the leaders are indignant. But it's not just what they see, it's also what they hear, isn't it? You pick up the irony of verse 15. The leaders are angry because there are people praising God in the temple. Jesus, you've you've got to put a stop to this. There's praise in the temple. The children have heard the crowd shouting these words about Jesus. Just uh, look back at verse 9. In this chapter, Jesus rode into the city and people said, Hosanna to the son of David. And the children now recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, the king of God's kingdom, who is bringing salvation with him. And the leaders are indignant. They cannot accept that Jesus is now the center of God's saving activity. They cannot see that he is the true worshiper of God, the son of David. They cannot accept the wonderful deeds that he is here to perform and they will not repent. How tragic it is that the ones who should have been waiting for God's Messiah are the ones who are indignant when he comes. Which brings us finally to the little ones. I find it very striking in these verses that we have this contrast between the powerful religious elite and then the lame and the little ones. The leaders miss out on what Jesus is here to bring, but it's the the little ones who understand And rather than silencing the children as the leaders want him to, Jesus commends them in the most extraordinary way. Have a look at verse 16. Do you hear what the children are saying, they ask him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Now this final quote that we're going to think about from the Old Testament is perhaps the most striking, and I think it'll be worth us turning back to this one to see it in context. So please do turn back with me to Psalm Uh, chapter 8. It's on page 546. We'll be coming back to Matthew, so you might want to leave something in there. Now just look at the beginning of the psalm uh, with me. We see the biggest lens here that we could imagine. Have a look at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So the psalm is announcing that God is the glorious creator, the one who reigns over the universe. In a video I watched uh, this week, the person in it said that there are roughly 100 billion stars in our galaxy and that there might be 100 billion galaxies in our universe. This video is a few years old, so I don't know whether that's still what, what scientists think. That is extraordinary, isn't it? And Psalm 8 says the stars, the universe has been created by our creator God. As we read in verse 3, the heavens are the work of his fingers and the moon and stars were set in place by him. So we begin with this cosmic frame in Psalm 8, the majestic glory of God. And then do you see what happens in verse 2? We then zoom in to children and infants. Verse 2, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. I just noticed with me here that 
the one being praised is God himself, isn't it? It's the Lord who is glorious above the heavens. God calls forth praise for himself. And so as these children and infants declare God's praises, they're doing exactly what they were created to do. They're worshipping God. That's the reason for their existence. This is the reason for our existence. And it's interesting. This is the reason I wanted to turn back to it. It's interesting that lurking in the background are God's enemies. So do you see, God decides to silence his enemies by opening the mouths of children to praise his name. God fights his battles, not with the sword, but with the lips of children. God acts in strength by opening the mouths of little ones to praise his name. So come back with me to Matthew uh, chapter 21. Let's think about what Jesus is saying here. Matthew 21, 989. Do you see, Jesus is standing in the presence of his enemies, the leaders who've already decided that they're going to kill him, and he hears the shouts of the children in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, and he says, they are fulfilling Psalm 8. They're doing what they were created to do. They are praising God as they praise me. So he doesn't rebuke them. He commends them because they're saying something true. They're acknowledging that the man standing in the temple, overturning tables, healing the blind, restoring the lame, is none other than the Lord who has set his glory above the heavens. And so they do what they were created to do. They praise his name. And then we hear no more from the leaders, do we? Silenced. The little children have more understanding than the learned leaders of the temple. And this is how God has chosen to work in his world, isn't it? God in his wisdom, as we read in Matthew chapter 11, has hidden the truths of the the kingdom from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children, to the humble, to the least. He uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Now, I realise that we've covered a lot of ground this morning. Thank you for staying with me as we've looked at uh, various Old Testament passages. But I hope you can see now where all these threads are leading us. The Lord Jesus has come to his temple and he has condemned it as useless. Judgment is coming, sacrifices will end, the whole system will be no more. But he also tells us and shows us in these verses that something better is here. The gates of the temple might be closing, but the way of salvation is opening up, and it all centers on him. In just three days from this moment in chapter 21, Jesus will perform the ultimate temple-ending, salvation-bringing act. He will die. And in his death, the temple is condemned and is replaced with something better. Matthew records this for us. At the very moment that Jesus dies, as he breathes his last breath and gives up his life, Matthew writes that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple system ends. The final sacrifice is made and the new age of salvation begins. And now anyone, the outcast, the little ones, the weakest, the foreigner, you and I, can enter the kingdom as a true worshipper of the almighty God, not through our own sacrifices, not through the quality of our own worship, but through the death of God's Messiah. God has chosen this moment 
a moment of apparent weakness, the death of his son on the cross, to bring us all to our knees in repentance and faith. So to conclude our time together, I want to remind you how much better it is to live in this age of salvation that has come through Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we don't need to now go to a physical temple in a physical city with actual sacrifices to draw near to God in worship. And isn't that a good thing? Jesus has brought us to God. There are no barriers that were there before as we approach our Heavenly Father. There are no courts, there are no curtains separating us from him. We are seated in the throne room of heaven. There are no people excluded from the community of God's people. Anyone can come to God through Jesus, including us this morning. There are no more sacred spaces, no more places of worship, no more holy buildings. The whole of life has been opened up for us as an arena for worship. There is no sin that remains in our lives that makes us think, are we really welcomed by a holy God? Because Jesus has paid it all. The old has gone, the new has come, and how much better it is. So let me end with the words of Hebrews chapter 10, where he encourages us to remember these truths. The writer says this, Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful.